Welcome to episode 89 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, JJ. I'm an erstwhile editor and New York Times bestselling author. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to be talking about pitch contests, um, particularly Twitter pitch contests, but if there's any other type of pitch contest, you can probably apply a lot of this to that. I know that by the time this airs, it's probably going to be after DV Pit, which uh, I had hoped that we'd be able to get this up before then, but... Uh, the time travel of podcasting just isn't going to work that way, but it will still be useful for the next DV pit and for any other future uh, pitch contests. Yeah, this is really more uh, Kelly. Well, certainly Kelly has far more experience with this um, than I do, uh, particularly about the logistics and usually what happens during a pitch contest. Uh, but we thought we might talk about how to craft an effective pitch that will fit in a tweet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to start there. We're going to start with kind of the content of your pitch. Um, because when you're entering a Twitter pitch contest, there's usually a couple things that you want to make sure to get in there. A lot of times there's a particular hashtag that you'll want to include so that the agents who are looking for um, the the pitches can find them. So there's certain hashtags that you'll want to include for sure. So that's going to eat up a little bit of your word count. And then um, you're really just going to want to pitch your book. And it's going to be that elusive hook or logline or X meets Y concept that we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast, but I think it's always worth revisiting those kinds of um, things and how to make them effective. Right. So I guess it's kind of easier to start with what's the X meets Y formula is not a bad thing to, to do providing you're using the correct comps. And that is a very difficult thing for a lot of people to do. Now, frankly, I remember when I was an editor and when I was working at a literary agent's office, I would see kind of the X meets Y pitch and then kind of look at it and sort of be like, well, this this doesn't actually sound like... (laughs) the two things that you've used to comp your book to. Mm-hmm. And it's because often I think when people think of comps, they think of the external trappings of of whatever they're using as a comp title rather than the inherent story. Um, so to use my own book as an example, the two books that I comped were uh, Ketra and Lord Death by Martine Levitt and Beauty by Robin McKinley. Neither of those books really have much to do with fairies or goblins. There's really no fae element in either of those books. Um, But there's sort of a... The thing I loved about Ketra and Lord Death was that there is this folkloric feeling to it. 
there's clearly the trope of death in the maiden, which is something that I love that crops up in Witcher Song. And I picked beauty because, again, there's this narrative of a woman's coming of age or a young woman's coming of age um, and discovering herself when she, kind of when she's in an isolated place because beauty is in Beast Castle. So those were the two comps that I picked because those were the, the narrative storytelling elements that I felt were the most similar to my book. There is another way to comp my book, which is also what I use sometimes as a shorthand, and they're not actually books. Um, I said it was Labyrinth meets Amadeus. Um, and that does give you a slightly different picture of what that book, of what Winter Song was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it gives you the Goblin King angle and the kind of basic plot structure. Um, because Winter Song is obviously the most directly inspired by uh, Labyrinth. And then I used Amadeus because music... And also feelings about creative inadequacy and jealousy and all those sorts of things are really big themes in Amadeus as well. And also because I was a huge Mozart fangirl, so I was like trying to find a way to shoehorn that in somewhere. Um, so those are the reasons that I picked those comps. So I don't know. What about you, Kelly? What do you think about what's the most effective X meets Y? Yeah, I think it is a lot about making sure you're comping the right things. You know, are you comping for plot? Are you comping for mood? Are you comping for character development? You know, what what are you trying to get at with your comps? And I also feel that there's a particular alchemy in comp titles where, you know, we all talk pretty regularly about how you don't want to comp to the blockbusters. But likewise, you don't really want to comp to things that are too obscure either, or else it's really hard to have a reference point for them. And so there really is kind of a sweet spot where something is recognizable and meaningful. When you say the name of the thing, people immediately get a sense in their head of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's but it's not so... Uh, popular as to be rendered meaningless and not so obscure as to be rendered meaningless. It's it's something specific that invokes a particular feeling or idea. Um, I do think that one of the best X meets Y type things I remember hearing in that I heard it and I knew exactly what the book was going to be um, was for, I believe it's Karen McManus's One of Us is Lying, which I think was Breakfast Club Meets Murder. and like and that's perfect that's I know everything I need to know about that book just by saying those things um and so I think it is it is tricky it is tough to do and I think it's much easier to come up with bad comps than it is to come up with good ones um And something that I think can help if you are crafting a pitch and you are interested in using this X meets Y format is to say, you know, your comps, it's, you know, X meets Y, whatever your two chosen properties are, to somebody who, one, hasn't read your book, and two, might not even be 
into books and see if it gives them any kind of a frame of reference for what the gist of that is going to be or mm-hmm. ask them like if I say my story is a combination of these two things what are your expectations and see if the responses are kind of lining up with your intentions um because I think it's really easy for us to when talking about comps to focus on like the thing that connects it in our minds, in our brains, like I'm using this comp for a specific reason and it makes total sense to me. But you also have to remember you've read your book and the people you're pitching to haven't. You want to get them to read your book and you're using comps to try to pique that interest. So the comps have to have meaning outside of your work. We don't know necessarily how it's gonna connect to your book, so the meaning that's relayed by the comp titles that you choose has to has to translate has to work without knowing all the ins and outs of your particular story yeah the frankly i'm just not a fan of the x meets y example like unless you really know what you're doing i personally would counsel you to avoid using it mm-hmm um, because the thing is, again, as Kelly said, it's very, it can be very subjective. Like you can pick two properties and you know exactly what this means to you and maybe even your very close friends who like the same sorts of types of media that you do. But outside of that, you have, may not, it may not travel or resonate with other people. There are times where actual people in publishing would use this sort of comp structure and I would sort of look at it like, I don't really understand what this is. <laughs> like, and I would read the rest of the, the copy and I would have a much better sense. And, um, but I would, you know, and, and then at the same time, like, well, then why do you need this X meets Y? And here's a little, little trade secret. Most of the time that's used the X meets Y formula, uh, for sales to give them a shorthand for this book will appeal, most likely appeal to readers of these books, period. That's, really what the X meets Y is. It has kind of nothing to do with the story. Uh, maybe lightly has something to do with the premise, but essentially it's targeting a specific readership. And, and, and frankly, that was also the reason that I picked uh, Ketra and Lord Death and Beauty, because I think there is overlap in that readership. I think that a specific kind of reader who likes sort of more folkloric tales or kind of more of a fairy tale type mood, probably would like my book. So that was the reason I went with those comps because those two books also had that sort of fairy tale like mood. Um, but actual plot for me also mood is pretty important. I I don't know that many people who pick things to read based on purely on. A, a similarity to another story. At least for me, I like a lot of variety in my reading. I'm not going to read something just because it has a similar plot to something else. So, you know, the X meets Y I think is is pretty useful for somebody who works in the sales department, but I don't actually think it's really all that helpful when you're using it as a pitch. Mm-hmm. So then if we're not using the X meets Y concept... Um, what advice would you give people who are crafting a pitch for this sort of a thing? Yes. I think still the most effective 
Twitter pitches that I see tend to be really character forward as opposed to plot forward. Um, they usually focus on a character and that character's goals. And then there's even within the tweet itself, there comes the twist. There's here's my character, here's what they want, and here is what's going to get in their way. And honestly, those three pieces of information are really all that I need. Like, that's all that I need in a query. That's all that I need in a Twitter pitch. Like, that's really all I need to be interested is I need to know who are we talking about and what do they want and what is the thing that's in their way of getting what they want. And that combination is enough usually to hook my interest. Those tend to be the types of Twitter pitches that I like best. Obviously, you can't go into a ton of detail because you have a really limited character um, count. And so you're not going to be able to, you know, describe your character in full, but you can give me enough basic details. And again, this is a place where you can really draw on your archetypes and um, draw on those things. We did a whole big series on that um, a couple of months ago, and that might be a nice thing to go back and um, listen to and kind of brush up on some of your archetypes because you can deploy those really well here. You know, you can say things like the girl next door or, you know, however you want to describe somebody um, to get a quick and dirty, you know, injection of like, okay, I know who this person is just in this little short tweet. Uh, so I do tend to like those pitches best, which, you know, that's kind of what I like best in any type of <laughs> any type of pitching of work to me, you know, in my queries when I'm meeting people at conferences, those are always the things that I most want to know. So those are the things I look for in Twitter pitch contests as well. I do think that sometimes there can be interesting pitches um, happening that focus more on the premise, but that's when you have to have a really high concept story that doesn't work as well for things like contemporaries or, you know, kind of more straightforward, um, you know, genre fiction. It's really got to have a really high concept for that kind of a premise forward um, pitch to work because usually the premise alone isn't going to be enough mm -hmm. to really interest me. You know, if you're writing YA contemporary and um, you're doing a Twitter pitch contest and, you know, your premise is the summer before college, the girl has to say, you know, goodbye to her girlfriend before they both head off to different colleges for the summer. Like, how many people in this pitch contest have that same premise? Like, that's not going to be enough to make your pitch stand out from the sea of the thousands that I'm going to be sc scrolling through. So I think premise forward pitches really only work when it's a really high concept premise. Yeah, I was I was thinking about what I look for in short pitches, and I look for two parts, two things, as Kelly has said. I look for a setup of expectation and a, and a twist. It's kind of the first part you spend setting it up, and then you kind of leave the twist to the very last bit. Mm -hmm. So, like, if I were to try and pitch, oh god, I'm put, I'm gonna put myself on the spot here. If I were gonna try and pitch 
winter song on Twitter, I would say something like, um, Liesl is, all her life, Liesl's heard stories of the Goblin King, but she's too old for fairy tales now until the Goblin King steals her sister away. And that's kind of it. <laughs> like, you know, it's not the most elegant or really the greatest pitch, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to set something up here. I'm setting up in the beginning, you know, this is something that is a familiar element to her, but she's too old now and she's got too many other things to worry about. Um, and then it's real. Like she doesn't believe it anymore, but it has very real cons. The Goblin King has very real consequences on her life and that he takes her sister away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't do anything else. I don't give any more of the plot away. I don't need to because mm-hmm. I've set up an expectation and I've revealed that there is a twist that essentially starts the story. Yes. And that's, and you can kind of see that there is a story beyond the part that I've left off, mm-hmm. you know, until, and you know, you had, you say until the Goblin King takes her sister away. So then I think hopefully that would have people ask, well, what does she do to get her sister back? You know, like how, you know, how does she get her sister back? There's a sense that there's a story beyond the end of this pitch. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. I want a pitch that intrigues me enough and gives me a sense that there is more to be uncovered. And that's why I want to read more because there is a sense of something to be uncovered. Yes. Yeah. I do think that twist, that turn at the very end is important for something like a Twitter pitch contest Mm -hmm. because, and it doesn't have to be, you know, when we say twist, we don't necessarily mean like the twist at the end of a murder mystery or like a big, you know, shocking reveal, but it's, it's when things go sideways, you know, Mm -hmm. if, if nothing ever changed for our protagonists, the stories would never start, right? People would just go on living their lives and, you know, they'd live in the village forever and grow old and get married and have children and die and their children would, you know, grow old and they'd never go off on the adventure because nothing ever changed. So the twist we're talking about is that change. It's that, you know, it can be the inciting incident. Oftentimes it is, but it's the thing that sets the story in motion motion. that changes your character's life because essentially everything that your character has done before now, you know, has been their life going on as it is. And something happens that changes everything. And, and that knowledge, that twist, that change is crucial in terms of piquing interest because otherwise you're just telling me about a person you know, and I don't understand what it, like, they might be interesting, I might like them, whatever, but, like, what is the need to know more unless something changes? And so I do think that part is really crucial, and I think JJ's, I think your explanation of it being a setup and then subverting it or twisting it at the very end is a really good way to think about it. You want, you know, the majority of real estate in your Twitter pitch to be the setup and then the twist, and then you've got your little bits of hashtags at the end. But really, you know, the bulk of your of your tweet should be the setup, and that twist should be sharp. It should be explicit. It should be detailed and and succinct. It's short. It's not, you know, you don't have to go into the whole plot from there. We just have to know that everything has changed. Yeah, I mean it. It helps if you try and do this with other, either other books or movies. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if you were to try and craft a pitch, like if I were to try and do one for the first Lord of the Rings movie, and I just say Frodo Baggins is a normal hobbit, um, who just, you know, wants to, who loves the Shire and, or and actually this is probably better for like, it, you know, who just loves the Shire until his uncle leaves him a magic ring. You know, or, you know, there's, it's a little bit like, you know, that's what you set up. This is what the character is. This is what the character wants. And then something happens that forces the character out of that complacency or the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you were doing Harry Potter, you'd say orphan Harry Potter has, you know, spent his whole life uh, with his aunt and uncle who don't care about him, you know, believing that he was ordinary and worthless until one day he gets a letter that informs him he's actually a wizard and he's been invited to attend a school of magic. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's like, here's who this person is and here's what changes. Yeah. It's, you know, and obviously you want to be sharper than that. Then we're just, Mm. we're just coming up with these on the fly. You know, you would probably want to, in like the Lord of the Rings example, you would probably want to say something like, and you know, it could possibly bring the end of the world. You know, like (laughs) it's evil. It's literally evil and needs to be destroyed. (laughs) You know, you can, you should be more specific. And that's really what is kind of Kelly and I are trying to get at is that, you know, so you, you can practice where you come up and you set up the expectations of this care or rather the expectations the character has. Yes. Not necessarily that we have, it's the character. And that's, I think also to what Kelly says that she's more drawn to characters in these pitches. And that's kind of what we mean. Cause we don't really want to know who the character is. We just want almost to be in the character's position yeah. where we're with them. We know what, life is like now and then the moment of change Mm -hmm. you know then the moment everything turns sideways that's we you that's what you want to be crafting and if some of you guys are saying that sounds really really hard it is (laughs) we're not saying it's not hard Mm -hmm. um because writing in general is is hard and and but i do think that you know this is a good skill to have um the words themselves, I'm sure you guys will be fine if you have the un- an underlying idea of what makes these pitches and, and queries work, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be in the character's shoes, more or less, or understand where the character is coming from, so we, too, are sort of taken aback when the, surpri- when the twist happens or the moment of change occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, this really is, this is your elevator pitch. This is, you know, if someone asks you what's your book about, this is the two to three sentence thing that you spit out and you tell them, like, this is useful for much more than just a Twitter pitch contest. Um, you will use this, uh, throughout your publication journey, um, once you've got it down. So it is worth doing the work. And I think if you can use that blueprint, you know, get just a really rough draft of it down and then you can do the wordsmithing. You can, you know, make the, you know, word choices more detailed and specific and, you know, unique and, and make them hit harder. Um, and, and that kind of polishing I think will be 
easier to do and probably fun to do once you have that basic blueprint down. Mm -hmm. It's getting that part down that's going to be tricky. Um, But I do think those are the most effective types of Twitter pitches that I tend to see. Um, So that's kind of how you are going to craft them. And then I did want to talk a little bit more just about pitch contests in general, about um, the etiquette of them and about how to go about researching them and all kinds of things. Um, I will say as an agent that there's only one Twitter pitch contest that I participate in with any regularity, and that is DV Pitt. Um, part of the reason for that is that it is meticulously organized. Beth Phelan is phenomenal. Um, she runs that contest like a Swiss watch <laughs> and everyone who helps her, um, cause I know she has a whole team of people who assist her with that, but you know, kind of the things that go on behind the scenes of DevPit is that I always call it DevPit, but I think it is supposed to be DV. Um, Beth emails agents months in advance with the dates so that we can all get them on our schedules. She sends up reminders. She sends us guidelines and rules and and we're formally invited to participate. Um, A lot of times Twitter pitch contests are happening and people are like, oh, are you going to be participating in so-and-so? And And I'm like, I haven't even heard of this. I don't even know what this is. Right. Why, you know, like, no, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be looking at it because I don't even know it exists. Um, You know, so DV Pit is one that is really well organized that agents are invited to participate in and that they're given information about ahead of time so that it can be scheduled and on our radar and all of that stuff. Um, And Beth and her team work really hard to, to keep it running. And I think a lot of Twitter contests are not well run. They're not monitored. They're not... You know, it's just kind of a free-for-all. And as an agent, like whether I'm taking pitches at a conference or whether I'm doing something on Twitter or whether I'm, you know, giving an online lecture or whatever, if you're working with staff who are organized and who know what they're doing and who are running things, like I'm sure, J.D., you've been to conferences that were run really great and conferences that were a total nightmare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's demonstrably a better experience for the agents and the editors, because editors do participate in a lot of these contests as well, when things are well run and well executed. So that's a big one. Um In terms of etiquette, there's some simple etiquette. Most Twitter pitch contests will have a website where you can go and read the rules. And I highly encourage you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be surprised how many people will just like see a hashtag and just like jump right on there without figuring out what it's for or why or how it should be used or, you know, who it's intended for. Um, Some Twitter pitch contests are... Um, targeted toward specific creators. They're asking specific people to participate. It's not an open contest for everyone. So pay attention to those things. See if this is geared toward you or not. Um, A lot of them will have etiquette in terms of how many times you can post, either, you know, throughout the day or per hour. I think a lot of them have like a six tweets maximum 
um, no more than once you know, per hour or something like that. But a lot of the well-run conferences or pitch con- pitch, pitch contests, conferences, events, <laughs> things, <laughs> stuff, the ones that are organized and well-run will have some kind of guidelines or rules. And they'll be different, but you should look at them <laughs> and follow them. Um, a lot of times these rules are in place because it helps agents make sense of all of the stuff that's happening. Like when I've participated in these things before, like you click on the hashtag and before the page has even loaded, you're already like 500 tweets behind. Like you're already not even seeing the top of the most recent tweets, even before the page has loaded the first time you click on it. Like the volume is just so high and so relentless that without these certain guidelines in place, like you're going to miss stuff anyway, because we're all just only human, but like it would be so much more unmanageable if everybody just tweeted incessantly and you could tweet your own pitch 75,000 times per hour and you know, whatever. So follow the guidelines. It makes for a better experience for everyone. Um, you know, and use proper etiquette and, and be professional. Like if you're participating in a, Twitter pitch contest, you're trying to attract the interest of an agent and that's a professional business relationship. So act professionally when you're putting yourself out there. Um, you know, again, you'd be surprised by like, if I, if I'm interested in your pitch and I like click on your Twitter and in between tweeting your own pitches, you're like saying horrible things about the contest runner or other people or whatever nonsense you want to say, um, I'm going to see that and I'm not going to want to work with you. So, you know, be professional, (laughs) be respectful of people's time. Um, and also Twitter pitches are great. They are an incredible way to, um, boost certain creators and bring attention to people and give people platforms that they wouldn't otherwise have. But, that's not the way we sign the majority of our clients. Most of the time it still comes from the regular old query inbox. And if the, the agents that you're interested in don't favorite your tweet or your pitch, like it doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't want to work with you. It might be that they didn't see your pitch. It might be that, you know, the way that you pitched it in Twitter didn't, click for them, but if you send them a query, it will like, no matter what, just query the people you're interested in working with. That's really the way that I would say 95% of people get their agents still. Um, so Twitter pitch contests are great, but they're not the end all be all. Yeah. I, I mean, frankly, most of the people that I know, got represented by querying people, you know, mm-hmm. all my friends did and I, I did, I, I did not participate in a pitch contest. Um, I think even if you don't have a lot of, even if you don't have, and a lot of people I know who actually did participate in pitch contests ended up signing with an agent through a query anyway. Um, so it's not this, this isn't to say that it, it wouldn't work, but I also think that, it could be useful 
to sort of figure out how to tweak your pitch to see what is getting a response and what isn't getting a response. And that could also better help you craft your query going forward. Um, you know, so it's not necessarily like, you know, you just put your tweet out there with a well-crafted pitch and you'll get signed immediately. Because I'm pretty sure most of these pitch contests still have rules about contacting the agent afterwards mm-hmm. via email. So it's not quite, and it, you know, it may get your query in front of, or your pitch in front of them sooner, you know, as opposed to going, you know, putting, getting put into the queue more or less of queries, you know, so you get maybe, uh, it may get their eyes on your pitch quicker, but it still, you know, it, it's not the, a shortcut. That's really kind of what I say. It's not a shortcut. <laughs> Nothing in this business is a shortcut, Mm-mm. unfortunately. No. Um, you know, I think there are ways maybe to get attention quicker, and certainly a pitch contest is one of them. Uh, you know, in my own experience, because I worked in publishing and my name was sort of known, I'm sure that made agents that I queried look at my book, you know, or look at my query, uh, maybe a little, maybe they would prioritize it for that day, but ultimately they still had to like it and want to sign me. And not everybody that I queried wanted to represent the book and that's perfectly fine, you know, and I still ended up with my agent and it was great, but basically, you know, like, (laughs) There's really no way to not do the work. You know, you might be able to, you know, be like, hey, 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 you know, I'm over here, look at me, and you get a little bit of a faster response, but, you know, the bones of what you write still have to be what, it's still what the the agent will sign you off of. It's not going to be the pitch. Because you might have an excellent pitch, but if your manuscript isn't really what they are expecting or it needs a lot of work, it's still not going to, you know, bypass the work that you have to do. Um, I have been burned as an editor where I have seen, you know, a book that I was like, this is absolutely something I would read. And then I get the manuscript and I go, oh, no, this is not this is not what I wanted to read <laughs> or rather this product is not what I want to read. I still want to read the idea that I had what the story was going to be. Right. But not the actual work itself. Yes, yes. And I've had that happen, too. Um, you know, I think it just is the way that it is. Sometimes, you know, your pitch is really great, but your work isn't there yet, and you just need to do more work. Sometimes the pitch is really great, and it sets up the wrong expectations, and then the the manuscript that I get does not, to me, connect with the pitch that I was so excited about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes the pitch is great, and I get the manuscript, and it's fine, and I'm just like, you know, I'm not as excited about this as I thought that I would be. Um, and that's true of anything. I get, that happens to me when I get queries, you know, not just Twitter pitches. That happens to me when I meet people in conferences and I'm like, Oh, this sounds really great. And then sometimes I see it and like, "Mm, (laughs) not so much, you know, and that's just part of part of the business that, you know, here's a, here's a question. It's not really directly related to a pitch contest, but when people pitch you in person, 
would it would do you give them different advice or what is an effective in-person pitch? Oh, I actually, I'm going to say this, and this is probably a very bad thing to say as somebody who wants to continue to be invited to conferences. Um, I think in-person pitch sessions are incredibly difficult. Um, I wish that I, this happened at one conference that I did and I was like, this is the best. I wish we did this everywhere and that in-person pitches didn't happen anymore. One time I went to a conference and instead of being able to pitch in person, the person would bring a copy of their query, which I could read and then edit for them on the spot mm -hmm. because you can give a lot of feedback in 10 minutes on right. a query that you've never read before. And that way I felt like this person is getting useful feedback. We're able to have a dialogue that's not, you know, personal. It's about the work and it's concrete. And if I like it, then I can say, Hey, this is really great. I'd like to see it. So to me, that was so much better than having someone sit down and pitch me their book in person pitches. I think honestly, and I hate to even say this, the most important thing is really your, your presence and presentation. And by your presence, I don't mean like your physical appearance or anything like that. I mean, your delivery, the way that you speak about your work, because you could have the worst story in the world. And if you talk about it in a precise and engaging and clever enough way, it's going to sound interesting, even if it's not. But you could take the most amazing, interesting premise in the world, and if you can't deliver it and communicate it to me, the, the strength of that premise is not going to carry you through. And I think it's such a horrible disservice because writing is not public speaking. Right. And in-person pitches are public speaking. And no matter how hard I try as the agent sitting there to... Um, to get through, to, to put aside that notion and try to focus on the work. The problem is that I only know what you're telling me. <laughs> and if you're leaving things out or not saying things clearly or, you know, whatever else, I can't get the information that I need to look past the delivery of it. It's really difficult. And I think that you know, writing isn't public speaking and some people are comfortable speaking publicly and some people aren't. And I think a lot of times too, people get in front of an agent and they get nervous just because they feel the pressure of the moment. Like, you know, I'm in front of this person. I have their attention. I want to impress them. I want them to be interested in my work. And like all the pressure just becomes too much. I've had people sit down and burst into tears, which is just horrible. It's just horrible. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's okay. Like, I'm just a person. It's fine. You know, but, but it's so, I, I just, I hate in-person pitches. <laughs> I feel so bad, which is not to say that I don't want you to pitch me in person. And it's not to say that I'm not open to receiving those pitches and excited to hear them and to meet you. I am. I just think it's so much pressure on you, on the writer, that I wish there was a better way for that to go because I feel like, I feel like people aren't properly trained for it. People aren't. No, I, 
I mean, I actually pitch my book in person all the time, usually on Uber rides to and from the airport. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I really need to invent a different career, um, something really boring. But, you know, because people, you know, people, you know, what, what do you do? What do you do? Right. People ask me, what do I do? What, and if I say, oh, I'm an author and they say, have you published anything? I say, yes, I have two books out. Um, I still don't know how to actually talk about myself as an author. Um, because, you know, not, not very many people, you guys, our business is incredibly rarefied. Like not a lot of people know that this is a job Mm -hmm. (laughs) that people do. They, they have no idea of what the publishing process is like. You know, a lot of people wonder if I've self-published on Amazon or anything. Not to throw any shade on self-publication, but it is, you know, they people have no idea what that means. And I don't want to be that stuck-up person who's like, well, I'm a New York Times bestseller, actually. Um, <laughs> it, I never feel good saying that. Um, it just is like... Ugh. So, and so, you know, but naturally when people find out what I do and that they've been, I, I am a published author, they want to know what my book is about, which means that I'm pitching in person all the time. And frankly, what I found is they're either going to be interested or not. It doesn't actually matter. Most of the time I get written off because I say, oh, I write books for teenagers. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I generally find that the things that strangers, generally Uber drivers, um, you know, ask me or like, well, what sort of books do you write? Well, I say, well, I write fantasy novels aimed at, you know, younger readers like teenagers. Um, you know, and then they sort of ask me about the book itself. And generally I will say my book is about a young woman, you know, whose sister gets stolen by the Goblin King and she has to go underground to rescue her. And depending on the conversation, I might say, well, have you seen the movie Labyrinth with David Bowie? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, you know, and, you know, that's kind of as far as I will get in terms of an in-person pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, Books get, I I feel like if I were talking to people who did work in our industry, like if I were at a a social or a mixer or I was talking to a librarian or if I was talking to, um, I mean, in fact, I did this. I went to the Southern Independent Booksellers Association and we had this, what was essentially speed dating. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was a bunch of authors just sitting in in tables with just copies of their galleys. And then all these booksellers, these independent booksellers in, in the South walked through and they would come and talk to us and just say, okay, so what's your book about? And... I learned very quickly. I was basically, you know, and that's kind of what I said. I said, well, it is um, historical fantasy novel about, you know, a young girl whose younger sister is stolen by, stolen away by the Goblin King. And that's it. That was all I had time because they were either going to pick up the galley of Winter Song or not. Um, and so it's a different, it's a different situation. I think if I were talking to a group of editors, I might be, maybe be a little bit more detailed, Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, in person, my pitch still boils down to it's about blank, mm-hmm. you know, and very basic premise. And that's all I have time for. So I'm kind of like Kelly, where I'm like, I don't know how well a, an in-person pitch would have yeah. swayed me if I were an agent, frankly. It's hard. And they're they're usually long. I mean, not long, but they're usually like 10-minute meetings and... 
10 minutes can go right by really fast or really slow. And, (laughs) and a lot of times, you know, people have their like one thing like that they've memorized to say and they say it and then they sit there and I'm like, we still have nine and a half minutes. (laughs) And I try to ask questions about the book or, you know, about them or, you know, help them give me the details that I might need. Um, but it is hard. And I do think that I am someone public, public speaking always came very easy to me. Um, yeah, I didn't you know, have a problem with it either. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I was like, totally, let's do this podcast. <laughs> I can, I can talk about whatever for 45 minutes. Um, it's why I really like teaching. It's why I really like when I go to conferences, I like teaching classes and I like giving lectures and presentations. I have a theater background. I can project my voice to the back of the room. I just feel really comfortable thinking on my feet, conveying a certain amount of ideas. Um, it's something I enjoy doing, but I, I don't know. I don't think that in-person picture pitches are, it's hard. It's hard. I think it's, it's a certain skill set, and I think not yeah. everyone has it. And I think and it, that it's, it's the one-on-one it, thing too. I yes. feel like that's hard because yes. I think it'd be one thing if you were trying to speak, you know, and, and we can talk about this later. I actually, when people ask me, what is, what is a useful thing for an author to do? And I was like, take improv classes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I also have a background in theater, not as extensive as Kelly's, but I'm used to performance and I have no problem thinking on my feet. And I like, you know, being a ham in front of an audience that doesn't bother me, but I know a lot of people who are shy and freeze up when they're in front of a, a group of people. And I feel like one-on-one is even more pressure. And I feel, you know, again, these these Uber rides have really taught me a lot uh, about this sort of a thing. I find the most effective way is to actually ask the person asking me questions. What do you like to read? What are your favorite books? And, you know, depending on what they say, they're like, oh, I, I read a lot of, you know, James Patterson or I read... Uh, fantasy novels. Generally, if they say they read fantasy novels, I'm like, great, I have an in. <laughs> um, because I can then talk about my book. And again, this does require you to, or at least requires me to think on my feet. You know, if they, you know, if they say, well, I like mysteries. And then I'll ask them, oh, what is it that you like about mysteries? Do you like the action? Do you like, you know, you know, solving the twist? Or you, there's, I, I sort of ask them, what it is they like to read and also why they like to read what they like to read. And frankly, one that makes them think on their feet and sometimes their answer is just, I don't know. In which case, then I will do a very generic spiel of my own book. But I find I craft my pitch to a person far better when I have a much better sense of what they like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I feel like if you are doing an in-person pitch and you've got 10 minutes, as Kelly says, I think that's often a good way to, to sort of open it, you know, or even talk about yourself, like the books that you like to read. Well, you know, if I were talking to somebody who was a reader of, of YA and was a reader of fantasy and romance, and I knew that, I, I would actually start talking a little bit about what inspired me. Um, you know, you know, I, this is, I had this idea of a girl who was a composer, um, and she was underground or I had this image. It was actually an image. I had this image of a woman who was underground and she was a composer. And I sort of thought, well, who is she? 
And then I would talk a little bit about the writing process and how the story comes about. And I would maybe say, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I had this idea sometimes as a joke, depending on whether or not I think the audience is receptive. I'll say, you know, I was stuck in a really lousy day job working at a call center and I just had this idea for Fifty Shades of Labyrinth. Right. So there's there's an interplay there that when you're writing a query or crafting a pitch, you don't have to have that back and forth and that back and forth is crucial in an in-person pitch. It's crucial in theater, frankly, because every audience is different. So you're going to have to play whatever you're doing to the audience differently. That's where the phrase reading the room comes from. You have to get a sense of what the expectations are. And that has a lot, you know, so a lot of those things. So when I say, you know, the most useful thing for most authors, in my opinion, is taking a couple of improv classes yeah (laughs) not even public speaking frankly i think improv is much more useful so we have any last thoughts or things to say about uh pitches pitch contests no no i think again i would just really hammer home research the contests before you enter research to make sure that they're organized that they're well organized who they're intended for which agents, if any, will be participating. Um, you know, so just do your research. We like research here at Pub Crawl. So do it. And, uh, and yeah, best of luck to you with the setup and twist of your pitch. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on? I am working on a couple of things, actually, right now. I just got back this past weekend. I was in Door County, Wisconsin, for um, a publishing conference there. I saw your Insta stories. Yes. Anyone who missed my Insta stories, my uh, on the drive there, I stopped at a gas station. And I guess, this is my assumption of what happened, but I guess like people can put card readers inside yeah. like the slots of gas station like or, or anything really anytime you have to slide your card people can put something in there that will steal your card information so I stopped at the gas station um got gas and then drove six hours and by the time I arrived at my destination my card had been turned off for fraud and someone had spent a lot of my money in Georgia and uh, so so I arrived with no debit card and we have a credit card but I never use it so I didn't think to bring it with me and I didn't have any cash on me so I had to beg the fraud department to allow me to withdraw money from an ATM so that I could like live and get home Um, and they did so but the ATM like ran out of cash so essentially I had $120 to get me through three days with, you know, gas that I had to get home. I ate a ton of Hot Pockets. <laughs> it was like very, very harrowing. Um, but the conference itself was really lovely. Um, it was really well organized. Again, anytime a conference is well organized, that's always great. And the audience was really great. I got to sit in on a panel that was before mine that was, um, not sit in as, as be on the panel, but to listen and and watch the panel as it was happening, um, of some local editors of, um, like local newspapers and magazines and, um, like small town publications and, 
they had a really robust, fascinating conversation about how to diversify their workplaces and how to seek out um, freelance writers and all this stuff. And it was just such a wonderful um, conversation. I was so glad to be able to hear it. And then I got to get up and give my presentation, uh, which was just about agents and what we do and, and uh, what our job is. And then there was a Q&A at the end. And apparently it was a two-day conference. And apparently... Um, the programming on the first day that was happening while I was driving out and having all my money stolen from me, um, (laughs) (laughs) there was a panel of writers and authors, some published, some not published, and I guess some major agent bashing happened (laughs) during that panel, um, where just agents in general are horrible you know, scammers and terrible and all this stuff. And it was just very, uh, there's a lot of agent bashing. And so I didn't hear any of that. I didn't know that had happened. I wasn't there. I was in my car having all my money stolen at that time, but I got up and I had to like do my like agent spiel. And like when I first started talking, like everyone in the audience was just like staring at me. Like I had like eight heads. Um, yeah. Reading the room, right. You're like, well, something's clearly (laughs) off here. (laughs) But by the end, by the end, I had won them over and and it was really, really great. And afterward, there was a formal Q&A where people would ask me questions. And then after our time was up, I kind of moved off into a little side room and I would mingle with people and chat with them for a little while. And so countless, I lost track of how many people came up to me afterwards. I was like, thank you for renewing my faith in agents. After (laughs) yesterday, I thought, oh my God, they're all terrible people. And you've just completely changed that for me. So thank you. So I was like, okay, I'm glad. Like I walked into this having no idea what had happened previously. Um, But yeah, so I don't know what was said, but apparently it wasn't good. And there are bad agents out there. So who knows? Maybe these people had legitimate experiences that they needed to complain about. But uh, so that was this weekend. I did that. And then I am teaching um, an online course this summer, starting July 31st through Loft Literary. And I'm um, doing my query workshop again called Query Comprehensive. It's a four week class where we're going to do lots of awesome things and you will get your query workshopped by me at least two times. But lots of other stuff happens in the class too, and it's really great. So that got picked up, and I'm now um, building the online course module. So I get to go in and record all the videos of myself gesticulating wildly and (laughs) putting up all of our lesson plans and all that. So I'm building that so that that will be ready for July. So if you want to take that class, you should sign up. It's going to be fun. And then I have a big publishing thing that I can't talk about. (laughs) So there's that too, but this is a thing that has been going on for a long time and we're like, I see the light at the end of the tunnel and I just need to get there. So hopefully someday I'll have things I'll be able to talk about in more detail. uh, (laughs) What about you? Uh, March was a bit of a disaster for me writing wise. Um, it's just a busy month. The very beginning of the month, I went to a bachelorette party for Roshni Chakshi because she was getting married at the end of the month. Uh, the middle of the month is when we put our house on the market. Um, and let me tell you what isn't conducive to writing uh, is having to leave it at a moment's notice. 
for an hour at a time for showings. Um, and also having to live in my house as though no one lives here. Because it has to be show ready all the time, right? So it has to be perfectly clean. It has to, you know, I didn't cook for an entire month because I didn't want to have to deal with, you know, basically cleaning the kitchen top to bottom every time I wanted to cook something. Uh, and also the things that the real estate agent tells you is like, don't have anything on your counters and blah, 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 blah. So really, really not great at that. Um, and then the end of the month, I went to Rosh's wedding where I was a bridesmaid. Um, and it was an amazing wedding. I didn't sleep. It was rather awful. That part, the not sleeping part, the wedding itself was amazing, but the not sleeping part was terrible. Um, because, and, you know, she had a Hindu wedding and a lot of them are at least over a couple of days, a couple of days. And, um, and I, the Friday night before the ceremony is something called Sangeet. And Sangeet is generally kind of, it's not really a rehearsal. But it sort of functions kind of like a rehearsal dinner for other weddings. Um, people just, you know, it's a big party and there's a lot of dancing and often sometimes speeches are given, like I gave a speech, um, you know, performances and, and stuff like that. But I, so I didn't think I had to be in Georgia until Sungate, which was that evening. And then, you know, and Rosh is very, very organized as a person, and she had sent this, like, vast schedule, like, literally timed down to the to 15 minutes, um, you know, of, of what was happening that weekend, and I, and I was driving down to Atlanta from where I live, which is about five hours, and I was like, okay, I'll just drive down the, the day of Friday, and I'll be fine, because I was driving down with um, another author friend of mine, Sarah Nicole Lemon. But then I looked at it, and she said, I had to be there at 10 a.m. for actual rehearsal. And I was like, well, shoot. So then I, that meant I had to get up at, like, 4.30 in the morning and shower and make sure I left my house at 5 a.m. to get to Georgia on time. Um, and then between, because that ended at 12.30, and I Sunday didn't start until 6 or 7, and I was like, perfect, I've got time to nap. No, because uh, I was staying, I don't know if any of our listeners are in Atlanta, but Atlanta traffic is awful. It's worse than L.A., and I say this as a Los Angeles native. It's awful. Um, so I was staying in, uh, the wedding itself was downtown Atlanta, where I was staying is an area called Buckhead, which, as the crow flies, is like six miles away. Depending on Atlanta traffic, which to me seems to have absolutely no rhyme or reason, uh, it can take anywhere from 20 minutes or 45 minutes to get between downtown and Buckhead. <laughs> and But I finally make it to my hotel in Buckhead, and the bride, the beautiful bride, texts me and says, I left my very expensive Armani silk foundation at home. Uh, you're staying across the street from the, uh, the department store. Can you pick me up another one and I'll reimburse you? Which meant that then I had to drive back from Buckhead. And also, mind you, the first department store I checked did not have her shade. So then I, and so like all this time I come back and I have to immediately get ready to go to Sungeet. So did not sleep. Sungeet, of course, this is being an Indian party. Indian parties can go into the wee hours of the night. Um, and it did. I didn't stay the whole time, but I did. 
And then I, <laughs> the things I do for my friends because I love them. Rosh had us get ready at 4 a.m. for hair and makeup. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, and I thought, great, okay, so, and then between the reception, or between the, the ceremony and the reception, there was a couple hours, and I thought, great, I can go home and maybe nap. No. Because, again, Buckhead, depending on the time of day, is, you know, 15 minutes or 40 years from downtown. So, um, but it was... It was great, and I had a really lovely time, but as I said, it was not particularly conducive to writing. So when I came back from Atlanta, what I actually did was rent a space in a co-working office, which has been incredibly productive, um, and in my opinion, well worth the money that I spent to be there, the... You know, and I have a I have an office at home, and it's set up and, and everything, but frankly, working from home, and I didn't realize it until I was no longer working at home, is incredibly distracting as well. There's just so many things that, you know, the mailman comes, or I have to do my laundry, or I have to, you know, there's a million things that is taking my attention away from the writing that I have to be doing, whereas if I go to the office, I go to the office... And the only thing that I can do is work. So it has been great. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Um, have you read anything? I think uh, since the last time we spoke, I had The Girl King on hold. And by now I've read The Girl King by Mimi Yu. And then I've read a lot of manuscripts. I just got a lot of emails in the last week that people have competing offers. And so I need to <laughs> completely upend my reading pile. And it's, of course, not in chronological order anymore while I read the ones that have competing offers to see if I'm going to throw my hat in the ring or not. Um, and yeah, that's it. I think since the last time we talked and recorded, I've read actually a lot. And by a lot, I mean pretty much only Sharon Shin books. But uh, <laughs> I think I've read... I've read nine, ten of her books, I think, since the last time recorded. Um, she was actually recommended to me by Susan Dennard and Sarah Rash, who are also authors... And, um, I, I, she's not really like Maria V. Snyder, which we've talked about Maria V. Snyder on the podcast before. Kelly and I more or less read everything she's ever written. And they're sort of kind of light fantasy romance, but I don't want to use the word light as in they're fluffy or that they're not, you know, it, it's just, you know, the... It's not like an epic romance on the or an epic fantasy on the scale scale of like George R. R. Martin or anything. So they're just you know light fantasy romances in that regard. And I literally, I think I read. <laughs> I'm pretty positive I read three of them in the course of like five of them in the course of two days. Um, so they, I really needed that to to read. I also read. I think I had talked about before. Uh, Anne Helen Peterson, who is a who's a writer, uh, does a lot of pop culture stuff, and she used to write a column that I really loved um, called "Scandals of Classic Hollywood." 
that was turned into a book. And I think I talked about the book that I read. Um, but she had another one, uh, which I'm going to mess up the title, but I'm, I think it's too fat, too slutty, too loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the, the rise and something of the unruly woman. And so then she talks about various women and the reasons it, it pretty great collection of nonfiction essays. And, um, also read another work of nonfiction, which was, and I read it because she, she mentioned it in her book and it's called mid cult or maybe mass cult and mid cult by Dwight McDonald was an academic, but it's sort of talking about the theory of what is taste really, or culture. And that has been very interesting. I don't really agree with him a lot on a lot of things. Or rather, I think his his approach is um, a little narrow and uh, sort of, interestingly, a Marxist theory on culture, but not quite. Anyway, regardless, it was a very interesting book. So I, I thought that, so I read that and I also read The Wicked uh, read Wicked, Wicked Saints by Emily Duncan, which was great, and I love that. So I apparently did a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah. I'm jealous. Um, I always have to remember to mix things up with nonfiction. Um, because I often, I, I do realize now that if I'm in a reading rut, it's generally because I've been reading, reading the same kind of book over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And mixing things up with different genres and generally for me it's nonfiction really kind of actually does help me get out of a reading rut in general um any off many recommendations i do have some um yes so the first one is um an artist slash specific song um, it is a woman named, her stage name is Chika, C-H-I-K-A. Are you familiar with her? Mm-mm. Oh, she's amazing. She is a rapper. Um, she's a young, uh, queer black woman who raps and she's had a couple, I found out about her on Twitter. She's had a couple of viral, um, videos of herself rapping and, um, one of them was, um, when Kanye West came out as a Trump supporter, she, um, took his beats to, I think Jesus walks one of his songs. I think it was that one, but she took the, the beats to that song and she basically called him out in rap over it (laughs) because she's like the only way that he's going to listen to the only way that you're going to get his attention is if you use his own work against him. I mean, she's right. (laughs) And so she went viral for that. Um, she had a couple of other videos where she went viral. And so I had started following her on Twitter and on Instagram and on Instagram, she will post these videos of her rapping. And I don't know enough about rap and hip hop to articulate what is special about her, but I know that she's special. I just don't have the knowledge or language to be able to explain why, but she's incredible. And I've loved following her on Instagram. I have like my favorite little, um, songs of hers, her little clips that she's put up there. And I know that she announced a while ago that she got a management team and she's clearly been, um, 
she knows people in the industry since starting this journey. She was at like Jay-Z and Beyonce had like some kind of benefit thing or whatever. And she was there and she met all these people and she's like, I have a manager stuff is happening, whatever, because everybody's been like, when are you going to release an album? When are you going to release an album? And she finally officially dropped her first single. Mm. Um, and it's called no squares and it's everywhere. It's on Instagram or not. It's well, it is on Instagram, but it's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's everywhere. You can listen to music. Um, so I downloaded that immediately and it's just been playing on repeat in my car, uh, as I drive around. Um, I love it. It's so, so, so good. And now of course I have the one single and I'm like, I just want you to do a whole album. Um, cause her Instagram ones are amazing, but there's like the video limit on Instagram is only like 45 seconds or something. So you, it's not a full rap or a full song. It's just like some bars, so it's always like, I want more. You keep cutting me off before I'm fully satisfied. So her name is Chica. The song is No Squares. It's great. Um, and then other off-menu recommendations. This one's really silly, but I'm going to go ahead and shout it out anyway. I dyed my hair with Overtone. Mm. And I'm obsessed with it. Um, Overtone is like a color. They say it's not a hair dye. It's a color depositing conditioner. But um, I colored my hair rose gold. They have a special formula that goes over brown hair, and I loved it. It was great. It, it looks does really stain good your with... bathtub. <laughs> it looks really good with with your hair and complexion. Because yeah. I feel like if I were to try and do rose gold, it would look awful. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something that you've got to. Uh, you know, to work with your, your coloring and your vibe and whatever. I liked it cause I didn't have to bleach my hair. Mm-hmm. So most of their colors, they do a whole range of, of colors. And a lot of them are, they did just come out with a line of like natural type hair color, but most of their stuff is like red, green, pink, blue, purple. Um, and for most of their products, you would have to bleach your hair or lighten it in order to get it to take any color. If you've got darker hair, it's just not going to work, but they have two colors that are formulated to go over brown hair and that's the rose gold and a purple. That was the one I was considering was actually the purple one. Yeah. That would look good on you. I don't think that would look good on me at all. (laughs) No, you would look like a goth, like a, like a person playing a goth person in like a teen drama. (laughs) Yeah. It would be terrible, but I like the rose gold. It actually has like a purple sheen in general. So I, I thought about doing the overtone purple one. Yeah, I like it because if you, it's easy, like it washes out if it's not your jam. Like if you want to buy the conditioner and keep it going, you can, but otherwise you can just do it and wash it out. You don't have to bleach it. It did stain my bathtub, but I don't really care. Um, So that's my other off-menu recommendation. Chica and Overtone, get on it, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Um, Since we recorded, I... Finally finished Mass Effect Andromeda. It took me eight months, so I think that probably says a lot about the game. It's not, it's not bad. Um, It really isn't. It's not bad. But clearly, and there's like a whole article about how kind of what a troubled production process Mass Effect Andromeda had gone through. Um, But it took me a while. I 
love the original Mass Effect trilogy. Like, I genuinely think it is some of the best video games ever developed. And this is a companion story set, like, hundreds, like 600 years after the end of the Mass Effect trilogy, and it also takes place in a different galaxy, hence Andromeda. So the events of the previous trilogy do not do not factor into uh, what happens in Andromeda. So it's a whole new story. And whereas the original Mass Effect trilogy is about Shepard kind of bringing the galaxy together to fight a larger threat, Andromeda is really more about exploration. And so you play as a character called Ryder who is a pathfinder. So they've been a whole bunch of human, uh, not human, all the various alien races of the Milky Way galaxy have been put into cryosleep for 600 years, each race in its own what they call an arc, sent on this journey to Andromeda, and you start waking up. Um, and, you know, the intention is to colonize this new galaxy. And you play writer, and you're brought out of cryosleep. Something happens, and something goes wrong. Um, and you're kind of forced to... And by the time you get to the planet that was designated as the one where the humans would settle, Habitat 7, it is inhabitable. And that is counter to all the scientific gathering and the evidence that they had thought before. So now you have, now the, really the story is finding a home for your people. And as a general premise and a story, I actually really like it. I think, um, I also like the character of Ryder quite a lot. The, the companions I don't quite as love as much as I love them in the original trilogy, but to be fair, I we were with the characters of the original trilogy over three games, so you really start to develop an affection and emotional connection to them, and you only have one game in Andromeda to really kind of get to know and get attached to these characters, so that's not really a, a point against it. But there's... It's... These... The great thing about the game is the system of combat. The system of combat is much improved, which is good. It's much more dynamic as well. Um, but it's it's poorly designed in places. And I'm again, I only started gaming like two years ago. But even I was like, um, you know, the worlds are too big. They're too empty. They do not advance the plot enough. If I wanted an open world game, I would have picked an open world game. But this is Bioware, or at least it's Bioware now after Electronic Arts has taken over it. It just kind of, this is not what I wanted. I want a tight narrative with characters that I care about. That's really what I want. I don't really care. And also because this, this game... And I bought this, it's like, and I played this like three years after the game came out, and it glitches horribly. There's some very funny memes about it, but I mean, like, glitching, like, I had to, because it kept glitching in a boss fight, and I would keep, I would continually beat the boss, and then it wouldn't move on. And I'd be like, so then I would have to go back, and I kept defeating this boss, and then I finally had to go back something like seven saves and two levels before to get it to move properly again. And this happened a lot, and sometimes if the game took just too long to load, and there was like a little bit of a lag, then I would, I would panic, like, oh god, is it glitching again, and I have to do this whole thing again so that really didn't make for an enjoyable experience either. 
Um, but I did finish it, and I would be interested in playing a sequel if they ever develop one and fix all the other problems with it. <laughs> um, so there was that. Uh, I started taking Taekwondo. Um, and <laughs> the the master asked me, he, he was like, so why do you want to learn Taekwondo? And I could have given him a pretty pat answer, but the honest answer that I had was, I just want to pretend I'm a bender from Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> um, I started watching Game of Thrones, the final season. So I do one. have FOMO. About I Game of Thrones? I do. I don't watch it. And I'm okay with not watching it. I understand why people love it. Um, but I do... It has never really bothered me, but I do feel left out. Because everyone is watching Game it's of Thrones. It's definitely a cultural phenomenon, which is yeah. why... And I felt yeah. that way about Lost. As much as I hate Lost, watching Lost... I mean, I loved Lost until it ended and then I hated it. Because it was horrible. But but I was, you know, addicted to it at the time. And, and everyone I knew watched that show. You know, we all watched it when we were still living together. David and Jerry and Bear and you and everybody yep. would be over and sit on the couch and watch it and be like, what the f*** did we just watch? And, you know, I brought you a ham and whatever. Yeah, um, oh, God. <laughs> But, you know, but it, you had that sense of, like, I'm watching something that everyone else in the world is watching. I know it wasn't quite that universal, but it felt that way. And you'd go to work and you'd talk about it. And, and I know that Game of Thrones has a similar phenomenon where everyone watches it, everyone talks about it, everyone's, you know, thrilled and excited. And I miss being a part of that communal experience. Mm -hmm. So I do feel left out. No, I mean, that's definitely true. Like, part of the enjoyment of the show is is participating in the community around it. I'm I like I mean I like I, I like the show. I mean I like the books quite a bit. It, this isn't to say that the that both the shooks the books and the show don't have flaws because they do. Um a lot of them. And actually the flaws are different because the books, well, when the show has moved beyond the books in terms of plot, but uh, the books after after A Storm of Swords at least and I, li and I like George R. R. Martin a lot I felt like his books just stopped being edited and they just, because I feel the first three were very tightly edited and tightly plotted even though the books themselves are massive the story moves at a clip and there are interesting twists and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then you get to A Feast of Crows and The Feast of Crows was the very first book in A Song of Ice and Fire that I struggled to finish. Um, all the stuff in Dorne as well. And I, and the same thing happened to the show when they were following the stories of the books. So I feel like a lot of the stuff that George R. Like, the book, the world of the books has just gotten so big and so unruly. He kind of needs some to prune and shape this narrative, because otherwise it's just going to spread out forever like a weed. <laughs> so that, there's that flaw from a narrative perspective. The show has other flaws from a narrative and, and storytelling uh, perspective that are inherent to a medium, the, the medium itself. Um... And also, sometimes I, I, I don't 
necessarily know if the writers or the showrunners they know what they're doing and that they know how it's going to end all that sort of stuff but I don't know if they're they really know their characters or necessarily how to best serve those characters sometimes uh particularly Daenerys who I cannot stand I, I can't stand this character. And the show is continually framing her as this awesome person. And I'm like, but she's not, though. <laughs> like, she's just not. She's not particularly polit. She's not politically savvy. She is impulsive. She is a white savior. She is basically white feminism personified and is incredibly irritating, yet the show continually frames her as this person we're supposed to root for. And frankly, I just wish Daenerys would die. Like, and I think she will. Spoilers. It's not really a spoiler because we don't know what will happen, but I think she will die. Or at least I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I find... the the My problem is the two main leads I find incredibly uncompelling, which is Daenerys and Jon Snow. I actually like Jon Snow a lot better in the books. Um, but Jon Snow on the show, I find utterly devoid of charisma, so I get very bored. But he is like the linchpin on which like the whole narrative turns. And so I sort of sometimes watch the show and be like, okay, let's move on. I don't really care about you. I want to see more about Sansa or the Hound or anything else. Sansa's the best. Sansa's my favorite. I haven't read all the books, but I think I've read the first three. And I watched the first two seasons of Game of Thrones. And to be honest, I have read spoilers for just about everything <laughs> else. Like, I'm interested in the story. I just cannot watch the show. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's a little much. Like, all the rape and the violence. and Yeah. It's... I, just, I just can't. I understand why people do and love it. And I think at a different time in my life, I think I would have. But I just can't. I will say, like, the past two seasons, the rape, the sexual violence has certainly diminished, but that's because they're also bringing the narrative to a close, which has made it easier to watch in that regard. Um, But yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely hard to watch sometimes. So that's it for me. Yeah. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series. We're going to return to our author career series, and we're going to be talking about your public-facing persona. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also visit us on Patreon at Publishing Crawl and join our lovely patrons in supporting the upkeep of this podcast. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram as Publishing Crawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter and Instagram or my website, sjjones.com. 
Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Contagion, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag askpubcrawl. Also, Kelly and I will be doing our quarterly query critique, so please send the queries that you would like to have critiqued by us to publishingcrawl at gmail.com with the subject line query critique, and we'll definitely get to it pretty soon, date to be determined. <laughs> And that also means that for our Patreons, it's also going to be time for our first pages live critique. So you can start getting those to us as well. If you're not a patron already, it might be a good time to join. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll start getting those in. Email them all to us so that we can, uh, so that we can read them for you guys. And other perks that patrons, uh, that patrons have are access to things like a suggestion box where they can volunteer topics they would like us to discuss in future episodes. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.